Let's just go to the Lord in prayer before we get started. Father, uh, it has been good today to be in your house. It's been good to be among your people, and it's been encouraging for me tonight just to fellowship with our deacons and to talk about you and talk about people that they've shared Christ with or people that they're praying for. And, and some of them are hard cases. And Lord, you know the situations and we just pray for your sovereign will to be done and for your Holy Spirit to do what we can't do. That you'll continue to prepare hearts and open doors and change lives through the power of the gospel. And may you use us, I pray, as your witnesses. Bear witness to them that there is hope, there is a way to be made right with God, there is a way to, to peace and forgiveness. And then, Lord, tonight as we look at your word, such a powerful word uh, in the book of Romans, such a powerful message, I pray, God, there's no way that we with our little bitty minds could ever fully comprehend this book, the truths that are there, but I pray that you'd give us, give us a deeper understanding, a, a better knowledge of what this book is about and and how it relates to our lives and to how it relates to the people around us maybe even to those who are our ones and together we just want to pray for the power of the holy spirit to teach us to be our guide and that your word would come alive tonight not because of my words but because the holy spirit is opening the word to us and revealing truth to us your holy word. We ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> have you ever had a place where you just, maybe it's more than one, but have you ever had a place where you just really wanted to travel there? I mean, it's just kind of on your dream list. It's just, it's just kind of on your bucket list. And some of you, I know you've done, you've gone to that place uh, this year, this summer, but uh, some of you, you go to that place on your anniversary, maybe it was your 30th or your 50th and that that's your special place it's the place you dreamed of it's the place you saved for it was a place you planned to go one day maybe maybe you're not there yet maybe you're still dreaming about it maybe you're still planning how many have a particular place I do I won't tell you what it is but how many have a particular place it's like man one day someday I want to go there anybody raise your hand all right it'd be we don't have the time but it'd be interesting to see where it is where you want to go? So let's have let's have three of them real quick. Just set the stage. Where do you want to go, Angie? Where do you want to go? Where? The Holy Land. All right, absolutely. Keith, did you have your hand? New Hampshire in the fall. That's good. Somebody back here. Yes, in the very back. Alaska. Is that what you said? Alaska. That was Lisa, right? Was that Mandy back there? Did you have your hand up, Mandy? All right, where? Ireland. The home country. All right. All right, so, so there's places like that for all of us. There, there are places where, whether it's the Holy Land or, or um, what did you say? New Hampshire. <laughs> I, I, I want to go there too, but <laughs> New Hampshire or Ireland or Alaska, yes. Uh, there's places like there. It's like someday, man, I hope. To go someday I plan to go to this place for Paul his someday was Rome for Paul though he had a dream his hope the thing that he dreamed of the thing that he planned for the thing that he even prayed about was that one day 
he'd get to go to Rome. And he wasn't necessarily wanting to go to Rome to see the sights, though I'm sure there were beautiful sights in his day when he went to Rome. But, but he wanted to go to Rome because he wanted to share the gospel. He wanted to have the privilege of sharing the gospel in that key city. Now you need to understand, I, I said this last week, but Paul uh, was 20 years deep in the faith when he realized one day that he had pretty much saturated the Mediterranean area with the gospel. 20 years deep into the faith, he had really carried the gospel to all the key areas in the Med- around the Mediterranean. Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, in Romans chapter 15, Romans chapter 15, we, we kind of glanced at this last week. Romans chapter 15, he says in verse 19, the second half of the verse, so from Jerusalem all the way around to, I can't say that one, Elycrium, I can't say it, but you know, you, you can read it. He says, I have, watch this, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. You ought to get a, get a map sometime and look at those two places. And, and Paul was basically giving you point A and point B. And he says, from point A to point B, all the way around the Mediterranean, basically, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. I want to take the gospel to new places where Christ is not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Now, skip down to verse 23. This is so interesting to me, so intriguing to me. 20 years deep in the faith, Paul now says this in verse 23. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul says, you know what, as I kind of look around this area... Mediterranean, I really don't have that many more places to go to take the gospel. Which is an amazing statement to make. 20 years deep in the faith, he has already saturated the Mediterranean area with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he said, so I I want to take the gospel all the way to Spain. And on my journey to Spain, I hope, I plan my one place I want to go is Rome. So, he writes this letter that we call Romans to prepare the way for his visit there. Now, I said this last week, but let me say it again. Romans is not a light read. Probably the most difficult letter that Paul wrote. It's the longest letter that Paul wrote. And especially when you look at chapters 1 through 11. Chapters 1 through 11 are thick with theology. Chapters 1 through 11 will make you scratch your head and make you say, i got to read that again. What, what, what did he mean by that? Chapters 1 through 11 are thick with theology. You know, it's funny how things lodge in your mind. How, how you remember things from years ago that just kind of... Uh, I mean, I can't remember what I ate for lunch yesterday, but there's, there's certain things that just lodge in my mind that I can't forget. One of those things that lodged in my mind, I remember back when I was 17 and God called me to preach at uh, Clifton View Baptist Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. Literally a little white church on the hill. And so I was at, 
I, I was called to preach. I announced that to our congregation. And I remember, like it was yesterday, my pastor, C.W. Hedgecock, gave me a commentary on the book of Romans after I announced my call to preach. In fact, it may have been after my first sermon. I can't recall that. I, it, or it might just have been after I announced my call to preach. But I remember on the Sunday, he gave me a commentary on the book of Romans that I still have in my library today. Now, I'm 40. No, I'm not 49. I'm 50. I'm wishing. <laughs> I'm 59, and I was 17. Somebody do the math. How long ago has that been? How long? <laughs> what did you say? A long time. 47 years ago? However, I don't know. However long it's been. 42, thank you. 42 years ago, he gave me this commentary. C.W. Hedgecock, standing in the aisle of our little white church on the hill, he handed me this commentary, and he said, Keith, this is, I still remember it so vividly. He said, Keith, if there's one book in the Bible that you need to master, it's the book of Romans. He said, if you can understand that book, you can understand the rest of the Bible. I was a 17-year-old kid, and he handed me this book, and now, literally, the cover is off of it. The pages, are, they just fall out now. But he's right. There's one book you really need to master. It's the book of Romans. Because if you can grasp what that book is teaching, it will help you to understand the rest of what the Bible is teaching. And so, what we're wanting to do tonight is to take another pass at helping you grasp the story, the book, the idea of Romans. Now, last time we showed you the first half of the video from the Bible Project. We're going to show you the second half, and then I'll come up and we'll do our lesson together. So, this is the second half of their story of trying to explain what Romans is all about. Let's watch this. Paul's letter to the Romans. Check out the first video where we explored who Paul was, why he wrote this letter, and where we trace the core ideas of chapters 1 through 4. That all humanity is hopelessly trapped in sin and needs to be rescued. That this rescue is not going to happen by people trying to obey the laws of the Torah. Rather, God's righteous character has moved him to rescue the world through Jesus' death and resurrection so that he could create a faith-based multi-ethnic family of Abraham as his people. Now, in the remaining three movements of the letter to the Romans, Paul is going to develop these ideas even more. So, remember, Paul's exploration of justification by faith, that when people trust Jesus' death and resurrection was for them, they're given a new status, they're right with God, they're placed in a new family, the covenant people of Abraham, and they're given a new future, the hope of a transformed life. Now Paul wants to show how this reality should reshape every part of our existence because being in this family means being a part of a new humanity that God is creating through Jesus and the Spirit. So Paul goes back to the first human character of the biblical story, Adam. His name means humanity. And Adam, like all humanity after him, has chosen sin and selfishness. And so everyone faces God's judgment because we've become slaves to sin's influence resulting in death. 
But then Paul contrasts Adam with Jesus, who he says is the new Adam, a human who lived in faithful obedience to God, shown through his act of sacrificial love. And now Jesus offers his life as a gift to others so that they can be justified before God. And so Jesus stands as the head of a new humanity that is being transformed by this gift, which leads him to chapter 6. Paul reminds these Christians in Rome that choosing to follow Jesus means leaving their old Adam-like humanity and entering into the new Jesus-like humanity. And their baptism was a sacred symbol of that transition. Their old humanity died with Jesus, and their new humanity was raised with him from the dead. So when a person trusts in Jesus, their life becomes joined to his life. What's true of him is now true of them. It's when people accept their identity as Jesus-like humans that they are liberated to become the wholehearted humans who can truly love God and their neighbor. Now, if creating this new humanity was always God's purpose, Paul asks in chapter 7, what then was the point of God giving Israel the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah? Now, side note, when Paul uses this word law, he sometimes means the storyline and message of the first five books of the Bible, but other times he's more specifically referring to the hundreds of commands given through Moses and that are found in the Torah. The second meaning is Paul's focus here. What was the purpose of all those commands? Paul says that the commands of the Torah were good. They showed God's will for how Israel was to live. But if you read the storyline of the Torah, Israel broke all those commands. The more laws Israel received, the more they replayed the sin of Adam and rebelled. So even when God gave his people specific moral rules to obey, that did not fix the problem of the sinful human heart. And so paradoxically, these rules made Israel even more guilty. But, Paul says, that paradox is the point. God's goal was to make it crystal clear that it's evil that's hijacked the human heart and that the Torah, good as it is, could not do a thing about it. But, Paul says in chapter 8, the solution has arrived in Jesus and the Spirit. And here's how. The commands of the Torah acted like a magnifying glass. It focused the problem of the human condition into one place, the people of Israel. But now Israel's representative, Jesus the Messiah, has paid for and dealt with all of that sin through his death and his resurrection. And now Jesus has released his spirit into his new family to transform their hearts so that they can truly fulfill the call of all the Torah's commands to love God and neighbor. And there's more. God's renewal of human beings is the first step of his larger mission to rescue and renew all of creation, making it a place where his love gets the final word. Now, you can see how chapters 1 through 8 are one long flow of thought here, but it raises some other questions. If all of this was God's purpose, what is the current status then of Paul's fellow Israelites who don't acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah? How does this story fulfill God's promises to them? Well, Paul begins in chapter 9 with his own anguish over fellow Israelites who don't think Jesus is their Messiah. And it leads him to reflect on Israel in the past from the Old Testament story. And he reminds us that simply being an ethnic Israelite, a physical descendant of Abraham, never made one automatically a faithful member of the covenant family. Paul shows us how God has always selected a subset from Abraham's family to carry on the line of promise. And his point is that now that line of promise is carried on by those who follow Jesus. 
He reminds us that for a long time, people inside and outside Abraham's family have rejected God's will. He reminds us of the story of Israel and the golden calf and of Pharaoh's rebellion. He shows us how God was able to orchestrate events so that people's rejection of him actually accomplished his redemptive purposes. And so in chapter 10, Paul turns his focus to Israel in the present. The reason many Israelites reject Jesus is because they're basing their covenant relationship with God on their performance of the commands in the Torah. And so sadly, they don't recognize what God has done through Jesus to create a new covenant family on the basis of faith. And so Paul asks in chapter 11, what is Israel's future? Has God written off his people? No, he says. There are tons of Jewish people, including himself, who do recognize Jesus as their Messiah, but there are also a lot who don't. But God has been able to use their rejection for his own purposes. It's caused the gospel to spread even quicker and farther into the Gentile world, making the family of Abraham even larger and more multi-ethnic. Paul describes God's covenant family as a big olive tree, and the rejectors of Jesus have been broken off, so to speak, and these Gentiles are like wild branches that have been grafted into the family tree. However, Paul says, one day Jesus will be acknowledged by his own people. He doesn't offer any details about how. Paul simply trusts God's character and promise that he won't give up on his covenant people. Which transitions into the final section of the book, chapters 12 through 16. But remember the big picture. Because of their faith in Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are now together Abraham's family, that new humanity that's being transformed by God's Spirit. And so, this is how God's fulfilling his ancient promises. Therefore, the only reasonable response is for these Jews and non-Jewish Christians to be unified as the church. In chapters 12 to 13, he shows that this unity will come from a commitment to love and forgive each other. Love will look like everybody using their diverse gifts and talents to serve one another in the church. And it will also mean humility and forgiveness. When these different ethnic groups and cultures come together in Jesus, conflict is inevitable, and it can only be overcome through the hard work of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is how they will show the greatest of Christian virtues, love, which fulfills the Torah's greatest commands to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In chapters 14 and 15, he focuses specifically on the issues that are creating ethnic divisions in the Roman church. These are disputes about the Jewish food laws and the Sabbath. And Paul says these practices don't define who's in or out of Jesus' family. And if people differ over these culturally important but non-essential issues, they need to learn how to respect each other's differences. And it's in this way that love will heal and unify Jesus' family. Paul closes the letter by first commending Phoebe, who's a key leader in the church of Kenkre. She had the honor of carrying and perhaps even reading this letter aloud to the Roman churches for the first time. Paul then concludes by greeting all the people that he hasn't seen for a long time, and that's the end. Whoa. You can see better now how all the pieces of this letter fit together and show what a profound masterpiece it truly is. That's what the letter to the Romans is all about. All right, let's go home. Tonight, I, I know that we won't get through the whole book. I, I understand that. But what we're going to do is try to fly a little closer to the text 
tonight than we did last week. Last week we took kind of a 30,000 foot view of Romans and, and just try to give you an overview of the entire book. Tonight we're going to fly a lot lower and look at the text itself and try to grasp what is the text is saying. At best, we will probably get through the first eight chapters, at best. But at least that will give you, I think, a framework to understand the entire book. So I want to begin by just, with an, if you're taking notes, an overview of the book. Um, if I could summarize the entire book of Romans in one phrase, without a doubt, that phrase would be the righteousness of God. If you think of Romans, the first phrase that ought to pop in your mind is the righteousness of God. Or in some places in the book of Romans, it will be listed as the righteousness from God. Same thing. The righteousness of God or the righteousness from God. That is a, the major theme that goes through all 16 chapters of this book. And really, that righteousness of God centers on two questions. Again, I know some of you are taking notes. I'm trying to go a little slow so you can write these down. But the righteousness of God centers on two questions. And the questions are who and, and how. Who and how. Now, let me go back and help you understand what we mean by righteousness of God. The righteousness of God simply means being made right with God or being in a right standing with God. So who is able to be in a right standing with God? And how does that come about? Now for us Southern Baptists who have grown up in church, we got that. We know that. But in Paul's day, we're trying to get into the mindset and, in, and into the, the situation in which Paul was writing. In Paul's day, those were two big issues. Who and how. Who can be in a right standing with God and how does that come about? So, one of the major issues in the book is this tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Write that down. One of the major, major issues throughout the book is this tension between Jewish and Gentile Christians, underlying Christians, not just Jew and Gentile, but Jew and Gentile Christians who are living in Rome. It's likely, though we don't have chapter and verse, it's likely that they were actually meeting in separate house churches, that there were Jewish Christians meeting in, in one house church and Gentile Christians meeting in another house church. Again, I want to underline, we're not just talking about Jew and Gentile, we're talking about Jew and Gentile Christians. But there was tension in the church in Rome, and, and they were at odds regarding the Gentiles' adherence to the law. There were three points of contention, if you'll write these down. Three points of contention. Circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws. Again, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you. But in that day, those three issues were, were hot-button issues. I don't know if, if you've been on social media lately. Um, I got off of Facebook. Well, technically, I still kind of get on it through Lisa's Facebook. But I closed my Facebook account because I just got tired of all the junk. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I've gotten somewhat off of Twitter. 
Uh, it's no longer on my phone. I can still access Twitter if I log into Twitter.com. I, st I can still access it. I haven't closed my account. But I have got, grown so weary of, of the, the religious junk on Twitter. The back and forth of if you're a good Christian, you'll do this or you won't do that. Or if you believe this, you're not a Christian. Or if you do that, you are a Christian. And, and there's so many camps now. And, and so many people are, are just... And I'll just give you one example. And I hesitate even to say this because somebody's going to take it and run. And, and you're going to do what they're doing on Twitter. You're going, to, you're going to assume that because I say this, then I mean that. But I'm a patriotic American. I love the United States of America. I am patriotic without apology. But on Twitter, there's this great debate about, can you be a Christian and be patriotic? Because if you're patriotic, then you're a supporter of a particular president. And if you're a supporter of a particular president, then you support this agenda, and you want this, and you want that. And a Christian shouldn't be patriotic. A Christian should be gospel-focused. And I want to say, of course you're gospel-focused. But I live in America. And I'm about to get off on that, so I need to stop. My, my, my point is this. Here's my point. I think it's a good point. My point is this. I'm so tired of the junk on social media, the back and forth about you should do this or you should not do this. And, and it's, it's a point, it has become a point of, I don't know if you're even saved if you do this or you don't do this. That's exactly what was happening in the church at Rome. In fact, I was thinking about today, if they had social media, in, in the days of Paul, the Jew and Gentile debate would have blown up on social media. I mean, it would have blown up on social media. Because the Jews would be insisting, in order to be a Christian, you've got to do this, 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 and this. And the Gentiles would say, no, 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 I don't even know if you're saved if you believe that. And, and so... Let me go back to these three issues. Again, Jew and Gentile believers, Christians in Rome, great tension over three issues primarily. Here's what they are. Circumcision, Sabbath observance, and food laws. Now, let me tell you why these were so important. The Jews living in Rome, their identity, the Jewish Christians living in Rome, their identity was really kind of founded on those three issues. A, a lot of what they believed were, were, were tied into those three issues. And so the Jews of the diaspora is what it's called. The Jews of the dispersion. The Jews that were no longer living in Palestine. They were, they were living in other places around the world. It's called the Jewish diaspora. The, the Jews who were dispersed across other parts of the world. They held on to those three things. This is what kind of helped make them Jews. This was part of their identity. Their identity was tied up in circumcision, Sabbath, and food laws. And in order to continue to be good Jews who they're not living in Jerusalem, they're not living in Palestine, they're not at the temple, they, they really, really held on. Even the Jewish Christians, they really, really held on to this concept of circumcision, Sabbath observance, and food laws. And so for them, what was at stake was their Jewish identity. These things we hold uh, steadfast. These things we treasure. These are our remnants of our Jewish faith. These are things that make us Jews. You know what the Gentile said? Gentile got on, on Twitter and said, We ain't Jews. And we don't care. 
And if you believe all of that stuff, then you need to go back to Jerusalem. And so there was this, this Twitter debate about what you believe and what you don't believe. What was really at stake was the gospel. What was really at stake was vitally important. And that is the gospel itself. Remember I told you the key phrase is God's righteousness? Does God's righteousness come by doing the law? Or does it come by faith in Jesus Christ? That's really the heart of the whole book. Who can have God's righteousness and how do you obtain God's righteousness? Let me show you this in Scripture. I told you we're going to dig deep in the Word, or at least we're going to read a lot in the Word tonight. Uh, chapter 2, I'm going to read a lot of stuff. I just try to stay with me, uh, but trying to let the text speak for itself tonight. Chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, Now if you, I'm sorry, now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolishness, a a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, pause, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's pretty stout there, isn't he? Keep reading. Now, so we, we, we talked about the law, now he's going to bring up the issue of circumcision. He says, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Now, verse 28, he really... It's close to home. He says, A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. And so Paul, this is just one example of how Paul is trying to take this issue that that has created a lot of tension and he's trying to help people understand it from the perspective of the gospel. All right? And the thing that drives Paul's argument throughout the book from beginning to end, the thing that drives Paul's argument is this, that God, watch this, God has brought both Jew and Gentiles together through Jesus Christ. That God's agenda is not that there are simply Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who live and worship in separate areas and and who are on Twitter fussing at one another. 
So that's not what God's about. He said what God is about is bringing Jew and Gentile together in one family of God. And so throughout the book of Romans, we see this. Let me show you this in Scripture. Uh, Look how the book begins. Chapter 1, verse 13 through 17. Chapter 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and to the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Uh, In other words, Paul is saying, I just want to make sure you hear the gospel and that you know the gospel and that you have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so he says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of Who's that? What's that next word? Everyone who believes. Then he says, in case you missed it, in case you missed everyone, Paul says, first, for the Jew, that is the gospel came first, the gospel opportunity came first to the Jews, then for the Gentiles. And then he says, again, in case they missed it, verse 17, for in the gospel, and here's the key phrase, a righteousness from God. Is revealed. That's what the whole book is about. A righteousness from God. And it's, it is revealed, he says. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now that's how the book begins. That there's this righteousness of God for both Jew and Gentile alike. Look how the book ends. Go to chapter 15. The next to last chapter in the book. Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 5 through 13. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of what? A spirit of unity among yourselves. Why? Because there's tension there. There's tension there among the believers, Jewish and Gentile believers. Tension there in the church in Rome. So may the God who gives Endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you, plural, follow Christ Jesus so that, look at this, it's beautiful, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Jew, you need to accept your Gentile brother. Gentiles, you need to accept your Jewish brothers. Accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. (laughs) Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, What did you just say? He said, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, the gospel, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs who are Jews so that the, what's that next word? Gentiles may glorify God. Paul is saying, listen, you need to understand, God's been about this from the very beginning. 
God's been about this agenda from the very, of Jew and Gentile. It's been God's heart from the very beginning. And then to make his case, boy, he really makes his case. I chuckled as I was reading through this because, you know, as he makes his case of Jew and Gentile together, he, he says, as it is written, and he's going to quote Old Testament here, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your names. You know who wrote that? Jews wrote that. You know where that is? That's in, that's in the Jewish scripture. And it talks about the Gentiles praising God. Again, he says, verse 10. This is so good. Again, it says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And the Jewish people are like, come on, Paul, give us a break. And again, verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you people. And again, verse 12, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in him. Paul is basically saying, don't you people read your Bibles? Have you not ever opened the Old Testament? Have you not seen how Isaiah and other Old Testament writers have talked about Gentiles over and over and over? This is not something new. This is something that has been God's agenda from the beginning. So that's how the book ends. We talked about how the book begins, how the book ends, and all in between. It's this, this whole concept of righteousness of God, who and how. Jew and Gentile, this tension. And God's plan is to bring them all together. Now, we're going to quickly run out of time, but here's what I want to do with the time we have left. Last week, I gave you an outline. And I said to you, if you'll take this outline and lay it down beside your Bible, it will help you to read through the book of Romans and perhaps to understand what, at least what those sections are about. So I want to return to that outline in the, in the 10 minutes or 12 minutes that we have left. I want to return to that outline and kind of put some meat on the bones for you, okay? I want to return to that outline and just go through the text with you using the outline that I gave you last week. And if you weren't here last week, I'll try to give you the outline as we go. So basically, here's what we're going to do in the last 10 minutes. We're going to walk our way through the book of Romans. Maybe we'll get to chapter 8, I doubt it, but we'll walk our way as far as we can before we run out of time. First of all, Starting chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Again, I'm just using the outline I gave you last week. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 7 is the salutation. The salutation. Now, this is the longest by far of all the salutations in Paul's letters. Most of the salutations, the beginning, if you will, the intro, if you will, most of those are rather short in Paul's letters, maybe one or two verses. The salutation in Rome, in the, in the book of Romans, is rather long. He had never been to that church, and yet this salutation, this greeting, if you will, uh, is, is the longest by far of any that he wrote. And I want you to notice, as we're going to read it in a moment, I want you to notice that even in the very beginning, even in this greeting, Paul focuses on gospel and Gentiles. Even in the beginning, the salutation. Let's read the text. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And, and so in verses 2 and through 4, he's going to focus on the gospel. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. And all the Jews were saying, Amen, that's right, he's a good Jew. 
and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then in the rest of the salutation, he's going to move from talking about gospel to talking about Gentiles. Look in verse 5. Through Him, that is through Jesus, and for His namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles, there's the word, to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the salutation, that's the greeting. Again, just moving through the outline, going to chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, is thanksgiving and prayer. If you're following along in the outline I gave you last week. Chapter 1, verse 8 through 15, thanksgiving and prayer. Here's, here's what we read. First, I want to thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Not for some of you, but for all of you. Because your faith is being reported all over the world. People are talking about the believers in Rome. Verse 9, God whom I serve with, with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. There's that one place I want to go. If I, the place I'm dreaming of getting to is Rome, essentially is what he's saying here. And he continues on to say in verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift uh, to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I have had among other Gentiles. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, and that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. So that's thanksgiving and prayer. The third part of the outline is chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, where he states basically the thesis of the entire letter. Uh, there's four points to it. Write these down. The four points of his thesis are these. I'll give them to you, then we'll read them. The four points are this, that number one, the gospel is about God's Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel is about God's Son, Jesus Christ. The second part of the thesis it's God's power to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. It is God's power to bring salvation to Jew and Gentile alike. Number three, it is the revelation of God's righteousness. The gospel is the revelation, the revealing of God's righteousness, how we're made right with God. And number four, it is available to all on the same basis, namely faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the four things points of his thesis, verse 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as written, the righteous will live by faith. I'm moving rather quickly because I'm trying to get to the, the next part of the outline. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 5, verse 11 and the outline I gave you last week is part one. There's four parts, four basic parts in the letter to the Romans. Chapter 1, verse 18, verse, through chapter 5, verse 11 is part one. And in part one, he deals with four main issues. Sin, the law, Christ, 
and faith. That will make more sense to you as we read the text. Sin, the law, Christ, and faith. Paul begins in part one by painting a dismal picture of the human condition. And he begins by, <clears throat> watch this. If you're a Jew, you're going to love this. He begins by talking about how bad the Gentiles are. He begins by talking about how wicked the Gentiles are. He begins by, by explaining that the Gentiles are consumed in sin. A very dismal picture of the sinfulness of the Gentiles. Verse 18. The wrath of God. That's a pretty good indication things aren't going to be good. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God's, God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because... I'm sorry, have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and the birds and animals and reptiles. He's talking about Gentiles now. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And he explains all of that and the sinfulness of, of what they did. And then look, look at um, verse 29. I'm about to run out of time. Verse 29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. And the Jews were saying, yes, preach it, Paul, preach it. And then Paul says in chapter 2, oh, by the way, the Jews are sinners before God as well. Chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Jews, you're no better than they are. We, we, we don't have time, but in chapter 2, all the way through chapter 2, he makes the case that the Jews are just as bad as the Gentiles, that the Jews are just as guilty, they're just as evil, they're just as corrupt. And watch this, and Jews, you had the law. And you still messed up. You're still messed up. And so when we come to chapter 3, what Paul is talking about in chapter 3 is that both Jew and Gentile are sinful and need, a, and need help. And that watch this, it's a help that the law can't provide. I, I love this. I, I wish we had more time for this. But, but let me just keep, let me read through it real quickly. Chapter 3, verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. That's, the under, that's underlined in my Bible. 
Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. He said, I've made the case for you. In chapter 1 and in chapter 2, I've made the case. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I could just about preach right now. Then Paul goes on to explain all the way down to verse 20. He says, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. He said, listen, don't brag because God gave you the law. Don't brag because you're the Jew and God gave you the law because you know what? Law's not going to save you. All the law's going to do is show you how deep of a sinner you are. And so then he makes the statement that God has provided a righteousness for all mankind. This would be a good, good place to end. Verse 21. This is so good. It's highlighted. It's boxed in my Bible. This is good news. But now... A righteousness from God. There's that phrase again. A righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God, there's that phrase, comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished and He did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Now, verse 27, 28, and I'll I'll end. Where then is boasting? You're going to boast because you're a Jew? You're going to boast because you're a Gentile and you've got more superior knowledge than your Jewish brothers? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Then, 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 he gets to chapter 4 and he says, oh, let me give you an illustration. Abraham. Ever heard of Abraham? Guess what? He was justified before the law ever came. And, and you want to talk about circumcision? Jews, you, you're all hung up on circumcision. Can I tell you something about circumcision? He was circumcised 14 years. I'm sorry. He, he was declared righteous by God 14 years before he was circumcised. To put it in these terms, he was a Gentile 14 years before he ever became a Jew. Ever thought about that? That that he was made right with God because of his faith. He was made right with God. And then 14 years later, he was circumcised and became a follower of God. Basically, we would call a Jew. And so here's the point. Don't get hung up on your status. The only thing that matters is your faith in Jesus Christ. And that would be a good word to go home on. All God's people said, Amen. God bless. Thank you.